We're in George Eliot country in Nuneaton town centre for today's walk. A gentle stroll, visiting many of the locations she drew upon for her earliest fiction. I'm Jane Markham. Welcome. She spent the first 21 years of her life living on the outskirts of the town at Griff, and Nuneaton took centre stage in her very first published fiction. It was a set of three stories called Scenes of Clerical Life, and in the story of Janet's repentance, Nuneaton is called Milby, and it's George Eliot's Milby we're seeking out today. She really understood people, and that's why her characters are so marvellous, because she understood all the frailties of human nature, and she's never really hard on any of them. She understood why they were behaving as they did, and I think that's what made her such a great novelist, that she was very humane and very understanding. Kathleen Adams, who for 40 years has been the secretary of the George Eliot Fellowship. Our guide today is local historian John Burton, who's a great fan of the three stories in Scenes from Clerical Life. It was published in 1857, the 150th anniversary of that celebrated in 2007, of course. Now, Janet's repentance centres round three main characters. The powerful, abusive lawyer Dempster, his abused wife Janet, and an evangelical clergyman, the Reverend Tryon. It has yet to be adapted for film or television, even by one of our most celebrated writers of historical TV drama. What would Andrew Davis make of the relationship between Janet and Tryon? In George Eliot's writing, it appears to be innocent, but there be beneath it, it's not quite. You know, the suggestions that, had they not been in the situation they were in, what Ken Russell would have made of it, I shudder to think. <laughs> but without the help of either Andrew Davis or Ken Russell, the sixth formers of King Edward College in Nuneaton have been working with their English teacher, Viv Wood, preparing a performance based on it. I was quite surprised, for I'd heard the worst accounts of her habits, that he'll sh- she is almost as bad as her husband. Yeah, I think that's quite an important bit, actually. She is, slow it down, she's really an interesting-looking woman. You know, you're yeah. really taken with this woman. You've heard she's a drunk, the same as her husband, you know? It's not about uh-huh. Oh, yes, really there are lots of themes woman. with modern-day resonance in this story, and we'll hear more of that work in progress later. But what remains of the Nuneaton of that time? Well, we can start in the churchyard at St Nicholas Parish Church and Dempster's tomb. Yes, Dempster's tomb. But this particular tombstone is where uh, the Buchanan's, Mr Buchanan, is buried. And Mr Buchanan is the man, the, the, the lawyer, who was used as the basis for uh, Mr Dempster. Also, just adjacent to that, is Mrs. Wallington's gravestone, and Mrs. Wallington ran the Elms School, which is where Mary Ann went to for three years as a girl, and I'm going to show you the site of that as we walk round. The tombs are towards the far end of the churchyard, after which we pick up the story on the other side of Vicarage Street, just before you get to the magistrate's court. It's the main A444, so uh, it's pretty busy here. It's about middle-class domestic violence which is a very, very contemporary uh, theme, you know, um, of this solicitor, uh, lawyer, lawyer Dempster, who is highly regarded and one of the worthies of the town, who goes drinking in the Red Lion and and beats up his wife, basically, when he gets home, you know, when he gets drink uh, inside him. She, uh, as a response, really, to this domestic abuse from her husband, herself seeks refuge in drink. 
And the whole thing is resolved, really, by the intervention of uh, an evangelical minister, the Reverend Tryon, who um, is shunned by uh, Lawyer Dempster and by the people from the church, the established parish church, and he's, he's actually based out at Stocking Ford. Um, so uh, what the evangelicals were doing in the early 19th century and late 18th century was showing up the faults of the then Anglican church, which on the whole was pretty corrupt, uh, in the sense that a vicar would have a living but he'd have two or three livings. So he'd live quite well on the strength of the income from the two or three livings, and he would then employ a curate actually to run the parish, and he would, you know, sun himself in whatever way he wanted to. The Anglicans worked on the whole on the assumption in those days that I won't worry you if you don't worry me. And that suited Dempster and his, and his cronies, you know. Um, they would have gone to church every Sunday and gone through this, this middle-class ritual, really, of attending it, but it didn't really impinge on their lives. The standard of morality at Milby, you perceive, was not inconveniently high in those good old times, and an ingenuous vice or two was what every man expected of his neighbour. Old Mr Crewe, the curate, for example, was allowed to enjoy his avarice in comfort, without fear of sarcastic parish demagogues, and his flock liked him all the better for having scraped together a large fortune out of his school and curacy. So when Tryon comes in and wants to set up some evangelical lectures and really do a, a sort of 1820s Billy Graham act, you know, of actually making people address the issues in their lives, then that's a bit disconcerting and a bit discomforting uh, for the likes of Lawyer Dempster. So that's the background, really, to Janet's Repentance. And the church we've just passed, which is a lovely building, it's a grade one listed building, but that's Milby. In, in George Eliot, in Janet's Repentance, Nuneaton is Milby. And over there behind us, and you, I hope you noticed as we walk past it, because you don't get the best, the best view from here, but you probably notice those gables, the gable ends of that yes, lovely 18th century building, and that's the vicarage. So the vicarage was right next to the church, as vicarages usually were. Pretty sizable vicarage. Pretty sizable, which um, indicates, you know, the wealth that the Anglican church had. Uh, not now, of course, it doesn't belong to the church now. It belongs to Cartwrights, the builders, and bits of it are, are to let. But it is a, it's a fine building. And the empty space near which we're standing today is ready for building. So by the time you're listening to this, it may be a building site, or indeed... There may be a new building there. But this is where George Eliot, the young Mary Ann Evans, went to school. The Elms. When she first went to school, uh, she went to a little dame school opposite the gates at Griff House. And then she moved to a little boarding school in Attleborough. And then in about 1829, uh, when she was at 10 or 11, she came here. And that would have been the end of the road. It didn't go all the way through. And, of course, at the time when she was here, the railway wasn't there. So all that side of town just didn't exist. This was right on the edge of the village. And you'd have gone over the fields towards what had been, they were enclosed by them, but had been the open field, you know, and the road across to Hinkley or out to Weddington that way. And while she was at this school, she was influenced by a teacher called Maria Lewis. And Maria Lewis was a very strong evangelical believer... Now, Mary Ann, of course, um, I, ought to, I ought to explain and explain the interchanging of words. Really, up until the publication of Scenes of Clerical Life, I really ought to refer to her as Mary Ann Evans. It was only with the publication of Scenes that she decided to take on this, uh, this pen name um, and call herself George Eliot. When she first goes to London, because she wants to be a bit divorced from the rather ordinary Griff and Nuneaton, you know, Mary Ann was Nuneaton or Griff, 
so she became Marion. She, she was a bit more sophisticated for work for London circles that she was then uh, moving in. But this was an important school, really, in her background um, because of that evangelical influence. She came from a strong Anglican background, don't get me wrong. You know, her father insisted that the whole family would have gone to church, so they were Anglicans and, 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 and pretty uh, devout Anglicans, really. They were quite, uh, you know, there was no... It wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of frippery or anything like that in, their, in her family background. Uh, but certainly Maria Lewis was a strong influence on her. When she left here, she went to um, a school called Nant Glynn in Coventry, and it's still there. It's the uh, it's Lovett's um, estate agents on Warwick Road. It was a very, very good school, and it was a boarding school, as was the Elms. It was run by two spinster sisters, the Miss Franklins, who were the daughters of uh, Mr Franklin, who was the Baptist minister of Cow Lane Baptist Church in Coventry. So she's got her Anglican origins, evangelical Anglican influence from Maria Lewis, and then the Baptist influence. And then, of course, when she moved to Coventry and came under the influence of the Brays and the Hennels, it was at that point that she announced to her father in 1841 that she didn't believe any longer and wouldn't go to Holy Trinity Church with him. And he was absolutely horrified. I mean, it was a terrible thing that she was saying. You can imagine it, can't you, really, if you've got, like, a, a teenager or... She would have been like a teenager now, if you've got a teenager who says, I'm not coming with you any longer, or I don't want to go on. All those sorts of things that we have with teenagers, you know. And he's having to deal with this from his daughter. And he must have thought, why am I bothering with all this? I've come into Coventry in the hope that she'll look after me, but also perhaps find a husband, you know. But because she was highly intelligent, and men are frightened of intelligent women, uh, and she wasn't terribly physically attractive in sort of traditional terms... So he'd got a bit of a problem on his hands, really. I'm sure he looked at it in that way, although he loved her dearly and she loved him, she worshipped him. So it hurt her enormously to say, I'm not coming to church with you any longer. Uh, eventually they compromised and um, she said that she would continue to go to church with him but reserved the right to think her own thoughts while she was there. <laughs> Fair enough. So it's a good compromise. And, of course, from that point onwards... She, did, she, she no longer had any religious belief. But the, her first book is called Scenes of Clerical Life. And that's the fascination of it, that she remains interested in religion. It always amazes me that this woman who has lost her faith is able yet to write so sympathetically about clergymen. It's quite extraordinary, you know, that understanding that she has of human nature. Anyway, that's enough of the sermon. Let's go back now to the front and I'll tell you a bit more about Janet's repentance. We're standing behind the library now. Our next stop is in front of the main doors, looking across Church Street. Right. Um, now, we're looking across at that line of wooden huts, <laughs> which were put up as temporary shops in 1958. I can um, They're not listed now. No, they're not listed. No. However, they were, they were on the site of Lawyer Dempster's house. In the, in the book, that's Lawyer Dempster's house, or where the Buchanans lived. And the Buchanans, as I've said, were, you know, they were well-to-do, they were the, 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 the top layer of society in, in Nuneaton. And those buildings were actually destroyed by uh, bomb damage during the war. So they were, they were pulled down, and um, the open space, the back gardens, actually, of those houses went right down to the river and uh, were very attractive, you know, for townhouses they would have been super. Funnily enough, only the other day I found in Coventry Library a picture of the back garden of Lawyer Dempster's house, 
uh, which was produced as part of the 1919 uh, centenary celebrations that took place in Coventry, 1919 being the centenary of her birth. It's, it's Church Street still. Of course, this, this street is actually the original Saxon main street of the original little village of Eton, and it only becomes Nuneaton when the abbey comes up the other end of the town and that draws it across the river into the marketplace. And that had all happened, of course, by the time Mary Ann knew the town. And she calls what we call Church Street, she calls Orchard Street. And what happens with Janet's repentance is that when Mr Tryon, the Reverend Tryon, seeks permission to hold a series of lectures in the parish church, that's when the balloon goes up where, you know, uh, Buchanan or, or, or Lawyer Dempster and all his cronies, they're not having any of this evangelical nonsense in their church. Let it sleep as it always has done, you know. Mr Dempster held his hat in his hand and poked his head forward with a butting motion by way of a bow. A storm of cheers subsided at last into dropping sounds of silence and hear him and go it, Dempster. Fellow townspeople, the pulpit from which our venerable pastor has fed us with sound doctrine for half a century is not to be invaded by a fanatical sect double-faced, Jesuitical interloper. We are not to have our young people demoralised and corrupted by the temptations to vice notoriously connected with Sunday evening lectures. When the last cheer was dying, Mr Dempster closed the window and the judiciously instructed placards and caricatures moved off in diverse directions. There were marches through the streets of the, of the village, as it was then, really. Um, some are for Tryon and some are against it. Um, down with Tryon, Dempster forever. And, of course, lots of the people would have been buttering up Dempster because they knew that's where the power lay in the, in, in the town. So that's quite an interesting sort of more modern interpretation of it. And Janet... Uh, on one occasion, when re things reach ahead, really, uh, she's, she's been enduring this um, abuse from her husband, and she at one point refuses to pick something up that, you know, has got thrown to the floor. Janet! Janet! Curse you, you creeping idiot! Come faster, can't you? I'll teach you to keep me waiting in the dark, you pale, staring fool! What? You've been drinking again, have you? I'll beat you into your senses! And uh, he's drunk and he's angry and he sort of uh, grabs her and, and just throws her out of the house, basically, in the middle of the night. So she's out on the street here, um, just in a nighty, really, uh, which isn't an advisable thing even now in Nuneaton in the middle of the night. Um, and she, she has to seek refuge with a friend, Mrs Pettifer, um, who would have lived off Mill Street. So just round the corner, really. And, of course, Mill Street, because where the uh, building is at the bottom there now, was the mill. So there she is, poor old Janet, thrown out in the middle of the night. And the description, George Eliot says, is that the stony street, the bitter northeast wind and darkness, and in the midst of them, a tender woman thrust out from her husband's home in her thin nightdress the harsh wind cutting her naked feet and driving her long hair away from her half-clad bosom, where the poor heart is crushed with anguish and despair. Obviously a disaster for her and for the marriage, and uh, it, it goes from bad to worse, really. Oh, Mrs Dempster? Is it Mrs Dempster? Reverend Tryon? 
I can hardly face you with what my husband's doing to you. He's an angry man, a bitter and disappointed man. Please forgive him. Think no more about it. Mrs Dempster, are you sure you're all right? Yes, yes, it's nothing. I had a bad headache last night. I keep getting them, and in my confusion, I fell down the stairs. Well, I am so glad to have met you and spoken with you properly, Mrs Dempster. Whenever I visited a sick or elderly person, there you have already been, ministering to them like a quiet angel in the background. Ah, the I just fell down the stairs excuse, already in use 150 years ago. Eventually Dempster is injured and is brought back really on, on a door instead of a stretcher uh, and, and dies... A lot of the book, really, then, is, is the repentance bit. We would probably call it now redemption rather than repentance because we might say, well, I don't think she's got a lot to repent for. But th- that was George Eliot's title, and the repentance comes through this relationship and understanding with the Reverend Tryon. In George Eliot's day, much of the subject matter would have been quite shocking. But it's perhaps this repentance element that's most difficult for modern readers and the students performing the extracts to get their heads round. Kathleen Adams again. They must find it They're very difficult to relate to Janet herself, or perhaps not so much to Lawyer Dempster, because there are abusive men now, but uh, Janet was, was the sort of character who they probably wouldn't have recognised so readily. Of course, you know, domestic violence is... It was a very brave thing for her to write about in those days, I would think. It was indeed, yes, yes. And and Lawyer Dempster was a really bad character. And she's not particularly sympathetic to him, although she perhaps understands uh, why he's like he is. But the fact that uh, Janet turned to his enemy for some sort of comfort, it is a very dark story. And what about the real Dempster? According to George Eliot herself because it fairly immediately became obvious that she was using real-life figures. She always denied it, you know, and, and, and in a way she's right, because a great artist distills the facts that she's using and, you know, they come out as a, as a work of fiction. But she herself says that the real man that, uh, that Dempster was based on was far worse than appears in the book. But it could be that, as, you know, as a middle-class person, it would all be kept quiet anyway. I don't know, but it's an interesting question. It would be interesting to know more. So what I want to do now is just to go through into Bridge Street so that we can pass the... Well, it's now called the George Eliot, but it was then called the Red Lion in, in, in Janet's Repentance, though we might remember it as the Bull. That's the pub where Lawyer Dempster and all his cronies used to drink. You can imagine it, really. And George Eliot, of course, describes that beautifully. No! As long as my maker grants me power of voice, power of intellect, I will take every legal means to resist the introduction of this demoralising, methodistical... It was very warm everywhere that evening, but especially in the bar of the Red Lion at Milby, where Mr Dempster was seated mixing his third glass of brandy and water. He was a tall and rather massive man, and the front half of his large surface was so well dredged with snuff that the cat, having inadvertently come near him, had been seized with a severe fit of sneezing. The only other observable features were puffy cheeks and a protruding yet lipless mouth. Of his nose, I can only say that it was snuffy. And, as Mr Dempster was never caught in the act of looking at anything in particular, it would have been difficult to swear to the colour of his eyes. I'd like to know what good those Sunday schools have done. No, no, no. It's right the lower orders should be instructed. You are a farrago of false information. 
you're ignored by the very fleas that infest the miserable alley in which you were bred. You better let him alone, Biles. You'll not get the better of Dempster in a hurry. What we'll do now, we'll just go round the corner and have a look at the George Eliot statue. For which you take the next right. Here we are, here she is. Um, local sculptor, John Letts, and... It's a great tribute, really, to the George Eliot Fellowship, because this wouldn't be here were it not for the George Eliot Fellowship. In 1980, or just before 1980, the Fellowship got behind a scheme to put pressure on Westminster Abbey to have a a memorial stone laid in Poet's Corner. And it's thanks entirely to Kathleen Adams and the the, the then council of the Fellowship that they plugged away at it and eventually got permission, raised the money, and the unveiling of that was in in 1980, the centenary of George Eliot's death. A great achievement by the Fellowship. She was fascinated by religions the world over all her life. And um, we were criticised for putting uh, what people described as an atheist in Poets' Corner in Westminster Abbey, but it was our national shrine for people like her. And we felt she should be there. And, and she is, so that's good. And then they went on from that and raised a public subscription for a statue of her to be in Nuneaton, because there was nothing of her. A few buildings, and there's the hospital and the school and so on. But there was nothing here in the town centre. So there she is, John Letts, um, who had a a studio out at Astley, which is Nebley in um, Mr Gilfield's love story, so right on the door next to the church, and that's his version of her. And Sarah, we've had a dress made for Sarah based on that dress. She's a girl from the regeneration department in the town hall. It's lovely, it's a lovely blue colour. Have you seen her in it? I haven't, but I've seen her dress in the museum, which is tiny. Yes. When you stand next to her dress, you think she's so small. Probably my size is small. (laughs) Yes, that's right. So there it is. I think it's a lovely lovely, uh, sort of pensive pose, really, that she has. And she's looking down Abbey Street, which would have been the main street. We'd have had the original village, the Saxon village, where we started, Church Street, and then there was the marketplace, and then there was Abbey Street. And it was Abbey Street where all the ribbon weavers would have been. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And about half the population of Nuneaton lived in the courtyards off Abbey Street. And they were absolutely awful. I mean, it turns your stomach to read the health reports from 1849, uh, just before George Eliot was writing, really. And yet they were producing this exquisite silk ribbon, you know, in these awful conditions. What I, what I want to do now is just to walk to the corner of this quite extraordinary building, half-timbered building, and then we'll go down the side of that. So, walk away from George Eliot's statue, down the street she's facing, and stop when you get to the first left turn. The building in question yeah. is on this corner. It's an amazing hotchpotch of a building, which would have been a half-timbered, probably... 16th century building, which would now be Grade 1 listed, you know, um, in about 1900, just before it was pulled down. And this was put up by Reginald Stanley, who was a local industrialist, a coal miner and brick maker. And uh, what it does is to show all the examples of the bricks and terracotta and so on that uh, were produced at Stanley's Brickworks. It is now a listed building, um, but uh, it's a good place to stop and just and just because down there is Abbey Street, you see the old part of the town, and this is what she says about about Milby. It was a dingy looking town 
with a strong smell of tanning at one street, which would have been really down by where Sainsbury's is now, alongside the river, because there was a lot of tanning taking place, but of course it needed a lot of water. So a strong smell of tanning up one street and a great shaking of hand looms up another, which would be down here. Mm. Lovely description, shaking of hand looms. And even in that focus of aristocracy, Friars Gate, which was here, or George Eliot's name for, uh, for it, the houses would not have seemed very imposing to the hasty and superficial glance of a passenger. Certainly in spite of three assemblies and a charity ball in the winter, the occasional advent of a ventriloquist or a company of itinerant players and the annual three days fair in June, Milby might be considered dull by people of a hypochondriacal temperament. So that's what I mean about her comments of of Milby, which are pretty uniformly um, negative, you know, but so beautifully done. Right, we'll go through to the marketplace. We're in the marketplace. So Mary Ann, as a girl, would have known this. The shape hasn't really changed at all, but it would have been full of the coal miners and mostly ribbon weavers and tradesmen and so on. Uh, and, and she would have listened in. I mean, she has such a wonderful ear for dialogue that it comes over beautifully still, you know, in the conversations that, that she picks up from, particularly from ordinary people, which was what she... It was revolutionary at the time. It's what she said she wanted to do to record or to write about ordinary people doing ordinary things, and in that lies the extraordinary. Um, it's marvellous, really, because she, she obviously succeeded. So what we'll do now is go to Mill walk there and go left and then across the river and into the George Elliott Memorial Gardens. Okay, we'll stop by the obelisk. After crossing the bridge up to our left is what was once the mill. For a thousand years it was the mill. (laughs) Not the same building. Blue brick building, six storeys. Wonderful building actually. The miller obviously traditionally was always an influential person in in any uh, society. There is a miller referred to in, in, in Milby. And when those buildings were bombed during the war, the idea was to convert this open space that was thus created into a park. And it was, first of all, after the war, called Mill Park because of the mill there. And then the George Eliot Fellowship, I think, in about 1948, suggested that it would be a suitable area of land because of its proximity to the Dempster's house and all the Janet's repentance bit, you know, to rename it as the George Eliot Memorial Gardens. And the council at the time agreed, great credit to them, and when it first opened, there was a water feature and, and uh, planters and so on. And they've long since gone. And, of course, that road didn't exist at all. That wasn't there. And the, the town could only become traffic-free once that road was opened in the, in the uh, late 50s, early 60s. Um, but we've still got this little tranquil area of, of the George Eliot Memorial Gardens. And at the same time, this obelisk, which had been in Arbury Park, up at Arbury, the Newdigate family gave permission for it to be moved here. And so it was transported here in 1951-52, and it's been here ever since. And every year, we have a little wreath-laying ceremony, and it's really nice. There are a few readings, there's a guest speaker. All the people, all the groups with with, uh, George Elliot connections are invited to lay a wreath, and there are normally eight or ten wreaths there, and they stay there for a week or so. So we're off to the museum, following the bridge that takes us under the road. So we go through there and then across, back across the river to the museum. There's a very good collection of George Eliot material in the museum. Make the most of it because once the Herbert has finished its rebuild, they want all their stuff back. 
So it'll return to Coventry, where she also spent part of her life. But where is George Eliot buried? George Eliot herself is buried in, in Highgate Cemetery, not too far from uh, Karl Marx. <laughs> um, there, were, there, was, there, there were suggestions when she died that she should have been married, uh, she should have been buried in Westminster Abbey because she was, I mean, she was a huge figure, you know, a, a, a great literary figure by the time she died. But because of her fairly pronounced anti-religious views, although, as, as we've, we know from her reading, she's very sympathetic and deep understanding of spirituality and, and religious approach to life. She's not atheistic in that, in that sense, but because she had obviously um, denied Christianity in, in that sense in the 1840s, um, I think the dean at Westminster at the time thought it would be pushing, his, <laughs> pushing their luck a bit to bury George Eliot, you know, <laughs> in, in Westminster Abbey. If you'd like to range more widely in George Eliot country, there is a companion podcast to this, which takes you on a drive to visit other places associated with her childhood. For how to get hold of that, go to www.enjoywarwickshire.com, where there are lots of other ideas for days out too. My thanks particularly to John Burton, Kathleen Adams, Viv Wood, and the students of King Edward VI Sixth Form College in Nuneaton. I'm Jane Markham, and this is a podcast production for Enjoy Warwickshire.